0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us Professor Ezekiel Merkow. Professor Merkow is a research fellow at the Center for War Studies at University College Dublin. And today we are speaking about his book, The Falklands War, an Imperial History. Uh, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor Macau.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Professor, uh, what is uh, the thesis of your book?
1: So, my book argues that in order to fully understand the Falklands' War and why it happened, we need to look at the imperial dimensions of the conflict. So, if you allow me just a second to explain a little bit where this comes from, um, usually when we talk about the Falklands War, we think of the the usual reason, reasons that are given are, for instance, that the Argentinian junta uh, was looking for a distraction because the the way the economy was doing very badly there. Or, uh, for instance, uh, in Britain, that uh, aggression must not be seen to pay. That was one of the, the key principles behind the British response to the Argentinian invasion. And also thrown in there is the, the sensation that perhaps it, this conflict felt a bit, little bit like an imperial throwback, a throwback to the days of empire. So this is something that led me to try to explore a little bit more why these two countries – which were on the same side in the Cold War, why they decided, why they ended up going to war, and why something that was such a, initially, uh, such a marginal uh, problem or a conflict between the two turned into something so big and and bloody as it did. And uh, so that's where I started looking into this imperial dimension of the conflict. And what I found is that, in fact, it had a lot to do with the the way the the conflict became bigger and bigger especially in Britain.
0: Uh, in the uh, beginnings of the book you employ the term and uh, use uh, quite frequently in your analysis uh and in the, in the narrative uh the term Greater Britain. What is what do you mean by that exactly and what are the origins of this particular uh term?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, In fact, this is one of the when I was exploring the the imperial, imperial, excuse me, imperial dimensions of the conflict. uh, At the beginning, you know, I came across the the more obvious or more crude, let's say, imperial uh, manifestations, the jingoism, the kind of thirst for gunboats and glory and conquest that uh, are generally associated with imperial times and imperial wars. But what I found as I digged a little bit deeper was that there was actually something, another imperial dimension which was a lot more subtle, but I think possibly also a lot more uh, influential, which was this idea of Greater Britain. The idea of Greater Britain is something that emerged in the 19th century, um, which was an understanding or or a, a belief shared by... Many, many people of British descent all over the world that they shared a common culture, common material interests, and a common ethnic origin. And this belief kept these people who were living in very distant places bonded together. And uh, so this was shared, for instance, by descendants of British people in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, in parts of Southern Africa, and... uh, and one of the, the, the things that I have done in my research is also to try to expand this beyond the so-called white dominions. And there has been kind of recent scholarship on this uh, showing that, in fact, there were many other people who shared this vision of, or idea of Greater Britain. Um, and I can explain now if you want a little bit more about how, why I end up talking about this in 1982. Because, of course, this idea of Greater Britain was something that lasted about a hundred years. Um, it outlasted the Second World War when sometimes it is argued that the beginning of the the end of the British Empire uh, took place uh, in the middle of the Second World War. In fact, this idea persisted after the war. There, were, there was still a great attachment to the idea of Britain mm. in those places until the mid-1960s. But there was a moment of crisis as the empire uh, on, dissolved, and uh, that eventually made this idea become obsolete.
0: Uh, would it be would would you um, um, adhere to the idea? I presume you don't. But let me ask you anyway: that as an active ideological construct in the UK itself, the idea of Greater Britain. Uh, doesn't really outlive the 19th century
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be so sure about that. I mean, I, I think it's we're talking about um this is in a sense a history of ideas and as such it is quite um, difficult to to define and uh, but what we can see are the the effects or, or the the ways of thinking, the patterns of thinking in people I'm not so sure. I think certainly, you know, when you look at the different events in the 20th century, and even into the 1960s, uh, for instance, the the different immigration acts restricting immigration into the United Kingdom uh, in the wake of empire in the 1960s. These were uh, immigration acts that were, um, without saying it explicitly. Uh, they were often targeted at reducing the number of immigrants from particular parts of the former empire, for instance, the Kenyan Asians in 1967. And, uh, of course, this was not said publicly, but they wanted to make sure that these restrictions, which couldn't be targeted at particular ethnic groups, wouldn't affect or wouldn't discourage people people from the, the white dominions, the former white dominions, from coming into the United Kingdom, because of course there was a lot of outrage in those places at any at the idea of having to queue up at a at a different queue from the the UK queue to get into the United Kingdom. And uh, so I think there even you can see in some politicians and some civil servants uh, remnants of of this, or, or perhaps even not, not even remnants, but uh, the idea of Greater Britain, the conception, the way of viewing the world. Still present, and what I argue in the book, in fact, is that what we see in the Falklands is that this idea was, even though it had become obsolete, certainly by 1982, it's still, in some way, present, um, and there is a certain revival of the idea. Um, one of the, the key findings of the book is the role of the of the Falklands lobby. Falklands Lobby was formed in 1968 uh, when the Falkland Islanders, key figures in the Falklands, found out that Argentina and Britain were negotiating a sovereignty deal uh, through the United Nations. And they were opposed to this and they wanted to stop it immediately. So they contacted a number of people, friends of theirs in the United Kingdom. They sent a broadsheet to the British media uh, outlets. They sent uh, this broadsheet as well to politicians. And there began the, the Falklands Lobby. And the Falklands Lobby, one of the things they stressed, one of their key arguments was very much a greater British argument. In other words, that the islanders must be defended because they are white, because they are British, like people in the United Kingdom. They speak with the same accents, they look the same. In other words, very much the idea, you know, that they shared a common culture, a common ethnic background, a common interest as well. They often refer to kind of the common material interests that the islanders shared with people in the United Kingdom, of how beneficial it would be for people in Britain to keep the Falkland Islands. So I think there, what we see is the fact that this argument actually resonated and that it became it became a big issue, in fact, because it meant that no politician in the United Kingdom, no government member of government, could negotiate anything about the Falklands without generating outrage in the media and in Parliament. Precisely because of the the growing power of the the Falklands lobby and the way this argument was perceived. And then in the war itself, we can go into that whenever you want. In the war itself, we see even more um, clear manifestations of this.
0: Well, getting back to the uh, ideological aspects, why did the uh, appeal of kith and kin, which you make so much of uh, in the book, uh, have resonance in the case of uh, the Falklands, which it did not in the case of, say, and it was just a few years, three four years prior uh, to the war itself, uh, in Rhodesia.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's not easy, obviously, to to compare the two cases. I I do draw some comparisons and some um, general sort of uh, similarities between the two, uh, and occasionally some references were made. I have some. Uh, interesting quotes from a British journalist called Peregrine Warstone, who did uh, mention the, the Rhodesians. At that stage, of course, the white Rhodesians had largely fallen out of favor in the United Kingdom. Uh, they, If you remember, they declared UDI in 1965. Uh, there was a, a group that was quite vocally in favor of the white Rhodesians, the Monday group. Um, famously supported them and there were a number of people in fact in uh, a number of Falkland Islands supporters who were members of the Monday group. So there were some connections there. One of the, the big big supporters of the Falkland Islands was a man called John Biggs Davidson who was an M P and he had been quite supportive, of course, of the white Rhodesians. I think by that stage, um, the white Rhodesians had veered way off the path uh, for the ordinary British person. Um, They had taken a very different route, and the Falkland Islanders, on the other hand, were just perceived as ordinary British folks who wanted to live in peace and and enjoy normal Peaceful country lifestyle; uh, they were often kind of depicted and seen in that way, and, and to to some extent, of course, very true. I mean, it is, it was at that time, and still is to a large extent, a very rural community, very peaceful. And no, so there was there were no reasons to to oppose them in the same way. Uh, in fact, uh, it was one of the. The big arguments that uh, were made at the time of the war were precisely that these people had hadn't done anyone any harm. They were very different to the white Rhodesians, who who were uh, very openly against uh, the British government, uh, who were. Also in war, in the middle of a war, let's say in in Rhodesia, so not quite the same um, view at that stage. That's what I would say is a key difference. A key difference.
0: Uh, would it be correct to say that, in your opinion, uh, the reason why uh, the Foreign Office's initial endeavours to, for lack of a better expression, hand off the hot potato of the Falkland Islands, particularly? on the question of sovereignty to the Argentine uh, fail because of the Falkland Islands Company. Is that the, is that the gist of uh, your opinion? The
1: company? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up actually. Um, at the beginning of the, the lobby and the Falkland Islands Company who owned about 50% of the land in the Falklands who had a, a large Stay in Falkland Matters uh, until the war itself. In fact, it was after the war that reforms began to take place. They were very dominant and very influential. And in fact, the, the origins of the Falklands Lobby are closely connected with the company itself. The, the first meeting in London was held at company offices. And some key members of the Falkland Islands Company Board were involved in the lobby. Um, Then, in the early 1970s, they began to part ways, particularly because the members of the lobby began to realise that it was not expedient for them, it was not convenient for them to have that association in British eyes with the Falkland Islands Company. Uh, It didn't have the same resonance with people, so they began to, to move away from that. Um, so I wouldn't say I wouldn't ascribe the the failure of the negotiations at the UN entirely to to the Falking Islands Company. I think they were they had some influence, but of course not the key player. Uh, there are also other factors, and I try to make that clear in the book that what I'm arguing I'm not making this the only factor in the in the dispute. I'm just saying we need to pay more attention to to these issues of national identity of um of rhetoric as well because often um some or sometimes uh, historians can not look at these things and dismiss them as simply you know mere rhetoric or things that are not um tangible they're not um material you know we tend to look more at economic factors diplomatic factors and all, that that's what i was trying to do to highlight this issue more I think it played an important role, for sure, because it made it turns an issue that in Britain had been until then an international matter, an international conflict problem, into a domestic issue. It meant that every time uh, this was brought up in Parliament, there would be serious opposition to it in Parliament, in the House of Lords, also in the media, and. I think that played a very important role. I wouldn't say it's the main issue that brought the negotiations down. There are other interesting works dealing with that. Notably, there's a book by an Argentinian historian called Martin Gonzalez, who did his PhD at the LSE and tragically died in 2011. Uh, It's called The Genesis of the Falklands-Malvinas War. And he deals a lot with the 1960s and argues that there were many other factors uh, there in in bringing down the negotiations of the UN. But I add that uh, what I think he didn't look at, which is the whole side of of identity, of uh, rhetoric, that I think played an important role as well in Britain in making this a much harder task.
0: Uh, would it, in retrospect, be the case that um, uh, a negotiated settlement, uh, if it occurred at all, uh, would have been much easier to have uh, happened in the nineteen, well, the late 19, mid to late nineteen sixties, when you had a labor government in power with a huge majority, which at that time, uh, for economic reasons, was retrenching uh, British uh, power. From abroad back to Europe, the uh, withdrawal from east of East of Suez in January 1968 being uh, the best example of that. Yeah, I
1: think so. I
0: think. Sorry. So, do you agree that that is the case? That if there had, if there was in retrospect, if there was a possibility of a negotiated settlement of the issue at all, it would have been easiest at that time.
1: I think so, yeah. I think um it would certainly have been an easier time. Uh there was more of an openness. Generally the foreign office was very open to the idea of of negotiating with Argentina. Of course they, they had um they didn't want to just simply give the island away but there were there are documents that uh, spell out very clearly that britain had no strategic or economic interests in the islands anymore that britain had didn't have the the economic might that it had before and therefore couldn't uh, sustain this uh, imperial relic as it was seen anymore and therefore that perhaps the the most realistic outcome was negotiated settlement with Argentina and there were people in the Foreign Office arguing, you know, the need the islanders, excuse me, needed to be slowly um told and convinced that their future lay with Argentina, not with Britain. So I think and that did continue into the nineteen seventies, but I, certainly it became a lot more difficult um one with the Conservative government and uh, and of course, with Margaret Thatcher herself, I argue, I also show in the book how, you know, throughout the 1970s, these uh, negotiations continued uh, for a number of reasons, um, partly also to, to keep Argentina in play, because the, the different governments in Argentina were constantly pushing this issue. And the UN, of course, was um, asking the two countries to find a solution and uh, therefore they needed to continue negotiating. But I think, as you say, in the 1960s, it certainly would have been easier. Once the lobby was formed, however, I think it became increasingly harder. And that's what happened uh, after uh, the the first attempts. And, in fact, a, a British minister, uh, Lord Chalfont, who went to the island in November 1968, uh, found already um, the islanders very much... Um, on the, on the defensive, and when he came back, of course, he was uh, in British Parliament, he was uh, quizzed and, and essentially forced to to stop these negotiations with Argentina and, and begin again. And so there we see kind of a change of tack in the negotiations after uh, 19, the end of 1968.
0: Was there a change in UK policy with respect to- uh, to the Falkland Islands after the coming to power of the conservative government in May 1979
1: well um the the british government had to continue negotiating um I don't think it was top of the agenda for Margaret Thatcher. Um, she had other bigger problems to worry about, notably uh, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. That was one of the the big worries she had. Um, but the she told her foreign, junior foreign minister Nicholas Ridley to take charge of this situation and try to advance it and try to to come with come up with some possible solution that the Argentinians would be happy with. Um, if we look at the evidence of what the Conservative government did between 1979 and 82, we don't get the impression really that they were at all costs trying to keep the islands or make sure that they didn't end up in Argentinian hands. Uh, they tried, uh, as, as you probably know, a lease-back initiative uh, that had already been um, proposed by the Labour government in 1974 and uh, not formally had been planned but never properly uh, put to the islanders uh, Nicholas Ridley did that in 1980 when he visited the islands and um, and the that was a, a possible solution of course that would still have been um, not uh, or acceptable enough if uh, the period Of the lease was long enough for instance uh, 99 years were mentioned so and then we have the scrapping of the HMS endurance patrol ship uh, from the South Atlantic in the summer season of 1981-82 again this all of these things send the wrong signals to the Junta in Argentina who were seeing Britain showing no signs of interest in the islands if anything the opposite but of course, Britain, at the same time, kept its um, hard line in negotiating with Argentina. They certainly didn't bow to the pressures from the Junta at any point, but there was there's no sign certainly that that the government, the conservative government of Margaret Thatcher was very strongly opposing any negotiated settlement with Argentina on the Falkland Islands.
0: Uh, from reading Sir Lawrence Friedman's official history of the Falklands War, uh, it seems fairly apparent that the, with the inauguration of commercial links between the islands and the Argentine in the mid, early to mid-1970s, that uh, what he terms an organic solution uh, to the problem of uh, integration between the two sides was on the cards and would have occurred naturally, organically as it were, uh, within uh, 20, 30, 40 years. That uh, this uh, solution was, in essence, uh, destroyed by virtue of the the conflict itself. Do you agree with this analysis? Uh, A, and B, why do you think the uh, Argentine government... um, did not um, uh, allow for an organic solution to the conflict.
1: Yeah, um, to some degree, yes, I agree. Um, I think the that was precisely the whole point of the, the 1970s approach, uh, particularly the early 70s. It was a hearts and minds campaign. Uh, Argentina were to get closer to the islanders precisely if, the whole point the, the the big difficulty really here at, at the united nations the the un resolution that asked the two countries to negotiate a, a settlement mentioned the interests of the islanders but not the wishes and this kind of war of words between britain and argentina played a big role in the 1960s and 70s argentina was focused on the interests which didn't necessarily mean that the islanders would be asked for their opinion as long as their interests were protected. And that's what Argentina kept trying to reassure Britain of. And uh, the British government, on the other hand, was focused on the wishes of the islanders, in particular since the the start of the Falkland lobby and the, the, um, the support that they had in the United Kingdom. So the whole point of the hearts and mind campaign was precisely this, to change the hearts of the Islanders so that they wouldn't see in Argentina a foreign, a hostile neighbor, but actually a very friendly neighbor who would come to their assistance, who would be the obvious uh, future for, for their livelihoods because precisely the British empire was, um, unravelling slowly or quite rapidly in fact and had didn't have the capability to sustain to keep the defense of the islands to to support them financially in terms of education in terms of health care and that's what was done in the 1970s so Argentina became uh, a closer ally of the islands in this sense you know they sent teachers to teach Spanish there they they the islanders could get a medical checkup in Argentinian hospitals uh, Falkland teenagers would go to Argentina for secondary schooling in British schools there and uh, they the postal service was through Argentina travel was through Argentina as well uh, but there were also negative sides to this and I've talked to a number of islanders who they while they enjoyed uh, certain elements of that i mean a number of them told me they they loved going to buenos aires they liked the city they liked the people in general they didn't have a problem with argentinian people although they had a problem with some and especially uh, authorities people in authority who were often didn't treat them very nicely you know typically at the airport passport controls and um, They had to use uh, what was called tarjeta provisoria, a provisional card. Uh, In other words, a kind of Argentinian passport of sorts, even though they kept their British passports. And uh, they they disliked the treatment that they got from officials very often. So there were were mixed feelings. Um, It is possible, I think, that uh, if things had continued the way they were going in the 1970s, eventually Mm -hmm. the islands could have gone into Argentinian hands. In fact, when Nicholas Ridley visited the islands in 1980, he spoke to a number of islanders, and at the behest of the the, the um, Executive Council and the Legislative Council on the islands, they asked him to meet people, because he wasn't planning to originally. But when he spoke to the people, he realized that um, a number of them were in a sense, resigned to this idea that eventually they would end up in Argentinian hands and they wanted the best possible deal so that it wouldn't be as painful as they imagined it to be. So, I think, yes, for sure, it is quite possible that the islands could have ended up in Argentinian hands, It could have ended up uh, in a favorable way for uh, the Argentinian authorities. And uh, why did the junta in 1982 not continue with that? I think towards the end of the 70s, and we have to remember, in in 1976, the military took over, the coup d'etat. And from there on, things changed. The tone changed quite uh, dramatically. Uh, By the late 70s, uh, there were um, reports about human rights abuses in Argentina as well. This was making Argentina less attractive, Internationally less attractive to the islanders, of course, and um, and then yeah, the situation in Argentina was, as many historians point out, was very volatile, and the economy was doing very poorly. By 1982, I I don't have the uh, full full kind of uh, insight into the minds of the military junta in 1982 when they decided to invade. But certainly, they they thought, uh, because of all the signals they were getting from Britain, that they would get away with taking the islands unopposed. That Britain would not put up a defence for the islands, given all the the signs that they had seen. And of course, they were completely wrong. And and it's very likely that they misjudged uh, entirely the intentions of Britain. But they were the signs that they were getting from the different points in in the negotiations that have taken place over the previous 10 to 12 years
0: now um, with the war itself um, wouldn't you um, isn't it the case that it's a bit reductionist to label all the rhetoric um, in the UK which was in favor of uh, regaining the Falklands um, from Argentine occupation as quote imperialistic unquote. After all, much of the same discourse or rhetoric could be said to be a species of World War Two nostalgia. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So um, I I actually address that point in the book because it's, it's in fact very difficult to to discern one from the other. It's it's not it's never something that is uh, very clear cut. I think the the main point is that when we look at the the reactions to the the Argentinian invasion, the reactions from the public, in the media, um, what we see is that there is a clear um, imperial streak in terms of just how people see the war itself. Um, There is, as I mentioned earlier, that kind of crude imperial imagery. It's fascinating. In the um, the British National Archives, they have, um, I think, six, if I'm not mistaken, files, big files, of correspondence between uh, constituents in the United Kingdom and their local MPs. So it's many, many, many letters from ordinary people to their politicians, and, and a number of them would say, would start off by saying, "I don't normally write to you. I've never written to a politician before." But this uh, this has triggered um, this in me, you know. And now I feel I need to write to a politician. And many of them, in those letters, express how uh, they see the conflict as as an, a revival of empire, as as a, a throwback to the days of empire. Others perhaps don't see it like that, or they don't say it critically, but the opposite. They might uh, wish for, you know. Uh, a Britain like the Britain of the days of old, you know, when Britain had an empire and ruled the seas and we see that as well. Um and then of course there is the, the whole side of you know defending Kit and Kin, which is always couched in in terms of this greater British ideal of uh, of imperial times as well, or very often couched. I do clarify of course that uh, this is not a, a judgment on people's intentions and of course it is uh, very understandable to a large extent that people would feel sympathy for a group of innocent civilians living on a, a number of islands in the South Atlantic who have been invited by by a dictator and a regime is imposed on them. So of course it is understandable that people would, would feel would side with the the islanders in that respect. What's what is interesting and what I'm trying to point out is the way this Imperial ideal is the one that people have recourse to and this is because this happened in 1982 because of primarily, this is my argument, primarily the work of the Falklands lobby over the previous 14 years. The Falklands lobby since 1968 Been reminding people in Britain through articles in the the media, through arguments in Parliament, about the essential, the quintessential Britishness of the Falkland Islanders. And this is something that comes to a fore, if you like, comes to the surface uh, very much so at the beginning of the Falklands War when Argentina invaded the islands. And uh, there's an output. There's a, quite a number of um, examples in, in British media and British Parliament. Also, letters from ordinary people. Many people wrote to the Falkland Islands office, which was, uh, let's say, a branch or, or an office that served uh, the. For the, um, the Falklands lobby itself, it helps kind of um, propagate their message in the UK. And people wrote to them as well, and um, people who were not necessarily donors or members of the Falklands lobby, but they simply felt sympathy and solidarity with them. So I, I think that's an important um, thing to bear in mind. So I'm not arguing, of course, that it's... That uh, Greater Britain is the only argument there, and in fact, even when people are mentioning things about World War Two, um, well, Britain was still an empire in World War Two, and of course, you know, very often the image alluded to is Britain fighting alone, and yeah, I mean, that is there is a difference there, but I think still, uh, overall, when we look at the um, all of the. The variety of arguments that were deployed, uh, I think there is a clear imperial streak. And I I think it's not something that is questioned generally. What is questioned is the role that that played. And most um, scholars who have looked at the Falklands War will acknowledge that. There was an imperial feel to the war. Some scholars will say, well, but it had no effect, really. It had nothing to do with the war. It was just a superficial trend. Others might argue, well, actually, it made a big difference. And and some might even go as far as saying that this was, in some way, a, a revival of empire. That's not what I'm arguing, neither of those two. I'm just saying we need to look at these dynamics because they actually had a lot to do with the way the dispute between the two countries was perpetuated, the way the dispute was allowed to grow and to, to eventually um, grow into a blown-out war, which which is um, perhaps would have been unthinkable 20 years earlier.
0: You, uh, in the book, devote a chapter uh, to the Anglo-Argentine community and uh, their reactions uh, to the war uh why so
1: yeah it was a, an interesting discovery as i was researching um the about the war um it's an interesting case often some some of the histories of the balkans war Deal with the Anglo-Argentine community, and generally, it's seen as a bizarre sideshow. It's something that had absolutely no bearing on the the political stakes in the war. In fact, it w- it was simply something almost humorous, something that just, uh, you know, added to to the this kind of feeling that the war was something uh, very strange. What I found, in fact, was that in the context of the idea of Greater Britain, it's fascinating. Uh, The anglo argentine community actually is not negligible. We're not talking about a tiny group of expats. In fact, uh, Britain and Argentina had close relations in the 19th century. There was uh, a significant number of immigrants from Britain, the British and Irish Isles. In fact, because Ireland was still part of the British Empire at the time to Argentina, uh, Britain invested hugely in the building of the railways in, uh, in the Argentinian economy. The Argentina, Britain was one of Argentina's uh, main um, countries for exporting its, its own agricultural goods. So, it's not a negligible community, and we're talking by uh, by the time of the war, uh, 1982, there were about 100,000 people of British descent, of whom 17,000 were British passport holders. Before the First World War, that was the the high point of the Anglo-Argentine community, and there were about 30,000 British uh, subjects. Who were living in Argentina? A lot of them had been born there. They were second or third generation um, Argentinian. However, they they had, like in other places, kept their British customs. They were uh, loyal to the Queen. They spoke English. They sent their children to British schools in Argentina. They had their own hospitals, their own clubs, their own sports. And um, but at the same time, they. They were and felt, to some extent, part of Argentinian society. They never really were forced to to question kind of this double allegiance of theirs until 1982, when the war took place. All of a sudden, members of this community found themselves torn in terms of their loyalties between Argentina and Britain. And this divided the community in an in unprecedented way. There were debates and discussions that took place. Families were divided, Um, people within, you know, friends that they wouldn't talk to each other uh, during and after the war. Things then were pacified after the war. Many people came back and started talking to each other again. But what's interesting is, um, and this is perhaps the, the most important point, is that because they they shared in this uh, greater British mentality that the Falkland Islanders had, they also saw themselves as sharing the same culture, the same ethnic origins, the same material interests as people in Britain. Even though they were never part of the former empire, they saw themselves as greater Britons. And because of that, during the war, uh, in the early weeks of the war, in fact, in the month of April, Twice groups of Anglo-Argentines went to the Falkland Islands to see and to talk to the islanders and try to convince them that it was okay to live under Argentinian sovereignty, that they had done it. They preserved their culture, their heritage, their language, and yet they were happy living under Argentinian sovereignty. So it's this... trying to reach out to another greater British community on this basis of a shared identity that is interested. And what's most interesting is, what well, two things. One is the reception of the Islanders. The Islanders received them with scorn and um, almost hatred. <laughs> they they shouted them out of the, the meeting halls. They didn't want to know anything. Uh, with the Anglo-Argentines, they considered them um snobs you know rich people who only cared about their pockets and their money and uh, what's also interesting is the reaction of people in britain because this anglo-argentine connection was brought to the surface by the war itself there were several reports in the media and uh, this was studied by um, the foreign office uh, people in Parliament and the House of Lords talked about this. Uh, what did we do with the Anglo-Argentine community? The British were, essentially, the Foreign Office were concerned about the 17,000 British subjects uh, or uh, citizens who were uh, passport holders. Uh, of course, being British passport holders, they had to protect them. The rest were of no interest to to the British Foreign Office. and The media, Parliament... They gave them relatively scant attention, really, uh, They or they treated them as as a bizarre um, community and nothing else, as as, as an old fashioned uh, community of people living as people lived in Britain, in an upper class Britain in the 1920s. And so what's interesting, what this shows for me, and uh, this is how I would sum it up, is that this revival of uh, greater British sentiment was partial it wasn't um it didn't include everyone it was a feeling of kith and kin for the falkland islanders but not for the anglo-argentines it was fractured it didn't really communicate well across uh, these two territories the falklands and argentina of course because they were at war so what this signals is then the, the demise of this idea that slowly kind of begins to unravel again after the war and what I tried to show in the chapter on the aftermath is that that this uh, idea idyllic uh, situation did not last that long
0: uh, are the there are two I suppose pertinent reasons why uh, particularly the Foreign office UK opinion general was dismissive of um, the Anglo-Argentine community's um, appeals. I suppose one was that uh, most of the one-time very large British um, investments and in ownership of um, of um, industries in the Argentine had all pretty much been nationalized in the uh, 50, 40s and 50s. And, of course, the second one was that uh, during the Second World War, people in the U.K. having rather long memories of such matters, uh, the the then Argentine government was, uh, for lack of a better expression, an unfriendly neutral. Mm.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. And and, and I think also the reason that Argentina was the enemy, so they couldn't be seen to be supporting the enemy in any way, uh, yes, I, I think that's that's a good assessment uh, that you're making there. Um, the Anglo-Argentines didn't count on these uh, factors at all, and they. What's interesting is that they really believed that they would succeed. There were a number of people also who spoke to members of parliament, to to uh, peers from the House of Lords. Even they sent messages to the prime minister herself, trying to convince her of this. And uh, some, when you read them, they sound—it's almost hard to believe that they—they they thought that they would be accepted. Uh, so there was a certain kind of state of unreality also about their their thinking and the, and their wishes, not in a totally different way to the way the Falkland Islanders' uh, thinking was, and uh, the Foreign Office. Uh, people in the Foreign Office often complained about the Islanders also living in a state of unreality. So I would say uh, what's interesting also uh, as a, a corollary to the, the whole idea of Greater Britain is that it did uh, generate uh, this uh, thinking that was not uh, very much anchored in, in real facts. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the idea of Greater Britain, as I point out in the book, I'm not saying that it was um, truth, you know, something that was totally real. But it it might have been more of an imagined uh, community
0: uh,
1: across the world that had true and real effects and consequences. So what I'm paying attention to really is the consequences of this mentality, of this way of thinking, not the truth itself of the of the thinking, which very often was totally off and, and very wrong. But what's interesting is that it really drove them to do things that seem uh, almost absurd to our eyes when we see them
0: nowadays. Uh, in the book, you discuss a little bit the um, eventual um, changes, uh, I suppose you could say, into more full integration of the Anglo-Argentine community into... Uh, the Argentine itself, uh, isn't the, and and you make reference to uh, that community as being one of the orphans of empire, isn't um, the ultimate example of that, and I suppose the model of what, be, what uh, eventually occurred in the Argentine, the Anglo-Irish community in the Republic of Ireland after 1921?
1: Yes uh, it's interesting I hadn't uh, actually thought of that uh, comparison but I think it's an interesting one um for sure I mean if you look at people in Ireland nowadays uh of Anglo Anglo Irish uh, descent they are very much integrated into into the society and even institutions that were formerly very much Anglo Irish and Anglo Irish only um are now there are people working there who are uh, not Anglo-By descent. So yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a way, an interesting way to to look at the the way the Ar- Anglo-Argentine community has uh, intermarried, has integrated into the community, so much so that there are, of course, there are British schools in Argentina still. There are British hospitals, uh, clubs but they're no no longer seen as exclusively British. And in fact, um, they're simply, you know, one of those. uh, There are other national groupings that have the same thing, Italians and French, and they've all gone the same way. In a way, they have become more simply Argentinian. And there is a a loose uh, cultural connection with their original country, but uh, that's, that's about it.
0: In the book, you focus intermittently on the uh, political left's less-than-positive attitude towards the uh, both the Falkland Islanders as well as the, the, the military conflict with the Argentine. Wouldn't it be the case that um, if uh, we were talking about an aboriginal population which was uh, in the position of the Falkland Islanders rather than a white British one, that many of these same people would be much more in favor of a military response to the uh, Argentines takeover in 1982.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting question and I've often asked myself the same. And of course, you know, uh, all of us would love to know uh, what if, you know, what if it had been a different community, different people it's very hard to tell that's the truth um perhaps i mean perhaps people might have been so outraged by the invasion of the junta that they might have felt they had to respond at the same time i doubt it in one sense i feel that a key thing that made this issue big in the united kingdom certainly bigger than than the size of the islands and the population would have warranted uh, although of course you know every person is valuable and and you know needs to be protected but we're talking about a very small population at the time there were 1800 people living there 1800 and it's a very small remote territory which um, is off the coast of another country and I find it hard to see how uh, British people would have justified uh, a war which cost uh, the state a huge amount of money and also lives at a time when Britain was economically doing very poorly. There was huge unemployment, uh, the economy was not performing well, there was social unrest and it's hard to see how this could have been justified in any way. And I would also hasten to add that war was not the only possible route, or not the only possible way, and certainly the United Nations were trying to to encourage uh, peaceful negotiations between the two countries, and there were attempts at having mediation, and they failed. So. I find it hard to see how this could have been justified in a way that people would have been happy with it. And I think without the previous 14 years of the the work of the Falklands lobby in convincing people or making people aware of the, the quintessential Britishness of the Falkland Islanders, the work of the Falklands lobby in convincing politicians, convincing the media, I just find it hard to see how Margaret Thatcher would have got away with this uh, at all with uh, sending a task force to such a far away place to defend uh, and also uh, i think importantly uh, one of the key arguments for uh, rescuing the islanders was that they were british by consent that they this is what they wanted and they were very keen to to remain british It would have been much harder in in international eyes and and in domestic British eyes to see how an Aboriginal population um, under British rule uh, should not have been uh, decolonized earlier. So I think that would also have been a strong argument against um, having a military intervention. But of course, um, any territory that is invaded by a dictator needs attention and needs to be protected because uh, it is very volatile. And we have seen, even in Argentina itself, the military committed many atrocities and killed many people. So um, they would have uh, deserved and probably would have been given some attention and and protection. But I doubt personally whether Britain would have uh, sent a task force like they did
0: to rescue them. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, What would it be?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Um, I think I wrote this book very much, um, this was based on my PhD. Uh, I never liked history that was extremely focused or narrow in focus. And I wanted something that was that had a broader uh, lens, let's say. And even though I'm looking at uh, perhaps a small enough conflict, Falklands War, I am looking at it in the bigger context of the un- unraveling of the idea of Greater Britain, of the unraveling of the British Empire. And uh, there are many things in the book that I think show the this conflict, this dispute, in its broader context. If if there was something that I would like people to take away is one that I think we need to pay attention to issues of national identity, to rhetoric in in how we assess conflict, how we assess disputes and historical change even. Um, I don't want to draw many comparisons with the, the present day. But certainly when we look around at the the situation in the world today, politics and politicians, uh, we look at Brexit, we look at Donald Trump, there is a lot of um, talk about national identity. There is a lot of talk and there's a lot of rhetoric. And uh, sometimes these things can be dismissed or, or seen as inconsequential. And I think what my research shows in this book, I hope, is that actually these things can be very important and they can actually have a big impact on on history and the way history unfolds. And what the book I hope shows very well is that without this imperial dimension, without the this attachment to an idea of Britain, of Greater Britain this conflict would never have escalated the way it did. And uh, perhaps we wouldn't have seen uh, warfare and on all the deaths that we've seen and a conflict that pers- persists to this day if it hadn't been for that. So that would be my think one of the key contributions, I would say, of this uh, book, is that issues of national identity, issues of rhetoric, I think, are important. They need to be taken seriously. They need to be understood, not to believe exactly what they say uh, or what they claim, but simply the fact that people do believe them or people make their decisions based on those assessments. And that can actually drive historical change.
0: Well, with that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Murkow, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.